Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and I'm here to say today, happy birthday to our show. Happy birthday to Criminal Injustice. It was four years ago on March 31st, 2016, that we launched Criminal Injustice. And in that time, uh, we've covered so many different topics as I think about it. I mean, it's almost too many to list. In fact, it is. And, uh, you know, it, it, it has been quite a journey over these four years as the criminal justice sphere has exploded to the point that uh, it isn't just about, say, police reform, which might be where you'd say we started, but everything that under the sun uh, in our world that involves uh, prisons, criminal justice policy, the law, policing on the street, I mean, you name it. Um, and uh, you know, it's been a great privilege for me to do this, but as one learns going through life, uh, very few things are solo endeavors, even those that feature, let's say, one voice most often. Uh, and uh, what makes or breaks an experience, whether it's the job you work at, the partner you have in life, so often is the person or the people that you're with. And I've been so lucky for so long to have the help, the guidance, the coaching, the assistance of my esteemed and highly skilled producer, Josh Rollerson, who's here with me today. Now, when I say here with me today, uh, Josh will attest that we have social distancing going. I am in my home studio, if you want to call it that, and he is in his, and he's going to bring these tracks together. Josh, thanks so much for being with me today and for being with me all the way. Hey, David, thank you for having me here. This is a really meaningful moment, and I really appreciate being involved in it. And I think we've got a good two to three miles between us at the moment, so social distancing <laughs> accomplished, I would say. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, your life is more complicated than mine right now because you have two young kids you're, uh, who are home from school and all the rest, and you and your wife are doing your jobs uh, in mm -hmm. your home. Uh, for me, it's me and my spouse and my two mutts. Um, so we're all hanging in there. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, besides uh, thanking you, Josh, for everything you've done for so long, making the show sound great, encouraging me to keep going and take new directions, uh, there are others that we really need to thank, too. Uh, we have to thank um, uh, my former partner in this uh, and still supporting player, uh, if you want to call it that, WESA, uh, Pittsburgh Public Media, uh, which has uh, uh, given me the gave which gave me the start for the show uh, when you were still on staff there. Uh, our former co-producer, Megan Harris, who is still part of WESA's operation and who I occasionally talk to um, through the Confluence, the show there that uh, uh, interviews me sometimes. Uh, many other uh, folks there at WESA, particularly Helen Wigger, who sits uh, at a desk not far from Studio A, where I have been recording but am not now. But Helen is the one who will come in and fix things when I screw them up in the studio or somebody <laughs> leaves a button on that shouldn't be. So I want to make sure to thank her. And of course... Maybe most of all, all the people who listen, who send us comments, uh, they're the people uh, who we do the show for.
Yeah, d- double shout out Helen Wigger and and Megan Harrison, everybody at WESA who was you know involved in this from the inception and has kept it going. And and Helen is one of the true unsung heroes of of media. Just love She's her. She's wonderful. Media. Yes. So if we can go back, kind of back to where it began, depending where you want to locate that, we started four years ago now, which is a, a kind of amazing to think about. Maybe even a little bit longer that did, depending on how you want to date it, because we started working yes. on this, I, if I recall, like in the fall of 2015. So that's right. It, it's been a while. So as, as best you can recollect from from that time, uh, how did this get started? What motivated you to want to do a show like this? Well, uh, as everybody will remember, if you think back to 2015 and even before that to the end of 2014, those were really awful years around mm-hmm. the issues of police and citizen encounters. Of course, we had the two uh, events of the summer of 2014, uh, the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island, both involving contact with the police. And those really did start a new kind of national discussion. Before that, um, the uh, uh, incidents like this would typically be dismissed as sort of one-off local uh, happenings that you know mm-hmm. were not connected to anything else, and investigation would slowly churn away. And you know, by the time there were any results at all, um, a year, eighteen months later, everybody would have stopped paying attention. What the Ferguson and Staten Island uh, incidents, and then so many more. I'm sad to say, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. I mean, you name it. What they suddenly did, and I think aided in a large part by social media, was they they brought people's awareness to the fact that this was a national problem, that these were local incidents, but they were all tied together by the same sets of issues. And uh, I had been sort of laboring in that trench for a long time as an academic and uh, working uh, here in Pittsburgh with the community, with law enforcement, Uh, We had had our own issues here in Pittsburgh, and uh, I was getting call after call after call from uh, uh, the media, from many good organizations, some uh, not as good. But, you know, I I always wanted to help, always wanted to talk about these things and bring light to them if I could. And at some point, it just became clear to me that there was no space either in the broadcast world or even in the, the somewhat newer podcasting world. Uh, for a full conversation about these issues and nothing else. And that's where I I began to think, you know, maybe that could be really useful, and uh, maybe I would be the guy to do it. And I remember writing to you because we had known each other a little bit. Uh, You were doing your own podcast at that time out of WESA called Nanograms, which I was a huge fan of. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it sounded great. I knew you knew how to do this and I wrote you a pitch email and then we Mm -hmm. met. And from there, as I recall, you came in and we met a couple of times and sort of talked about ideas and then made a plan to just take this concept for a spin and see how it goes. So, so you came in, you taped a pilot, uh, your first guest, if I remember correctly, was Vic Valchik from the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and we did a couple of other things uh, on, in that recording session as well. Yeah, that was that was uh, you know it, it's one of these things. Uh, be careful what you ask for. You know, I I, <laughs> I set this all up, uh, made a pitch to you. You were very very gracious. You said uh, this looks interesting. Uh, I'm finishing up nanograms. Um, um, 
you know, it'll be a little while before I get back to you. And the next thing I knew, maybe it was the next week, uh, come in and do a pilot. Um, and I thought, oh, I really have to do this. I have no idea how to do this. So I recruited Vic, who was also very gracious. Uh, we came in, and not only were we doing something I'd never done before, uh, we were doing it in front of you and Megan, which just, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> that was a little nerve-wracking. It was one of those experiences where you say, okay, fake it till you make it, pal. Let's just see if it works. And uh, we did a whole full interview with Vic, and uh, lawyers behaving badly, and uh, I think the two of you liked it and asked if we, if I could do some more, and we were off to the races. That feeling of, how's this going to go, that was definitely being felt on both sides of the glass, <laughs> as I remember. <laughs> Megan and I, like at that time, we were really interested in trying to get something going in the podcast space on behalf of the, the radio station, and you happened along just at this perfect moment. And, you know, obviously we knew you from appearances you had done on our programs and also, you know, your national media appearances. So we, we knew that you knew how to be interviewed. We knew you were an expert in your subject. We had never heard you asking the questions before. And we were really pleasantly surprised to see that, you, I mean, you knew exactly how to do it. You kept the conversation going. You had a rapport going in with Vic that I think helped as well. So yes. right, right away we could see this was, this was going to work. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful that you thought that. Uh, And uh, off we went. And as you said, that was the fall of 2015. Uh, It took a little while to assemble the first uh, eight interviews, but I found people Mm -hmm. actually quite willing to to, you know, metaphorically sit down with me because we did most of them uh, not in the studio, but uh, through a telephone line. And um, we had eight together, and we put the first one on, that first pilot with Vic, on March 31st. We did a nice little event at the the School of Law at Pitt uh, to sort of introduce the community to us and us to them. And off we went. And, you know, since that time, Mm -hmm. what, 117, I think, is the last interview that we posted um, yep. and a uh, huge, uh, large number of bonuses and features. And uh, we've just really covered the waterfront. I mean, there are new <laughs> things that pop up all the time to us, uh, uh, but uh, we have really covered a lot. I will admit that was one of the things that gave me some hesitation early on. It's like, how many of these interview guests are we going to be able to consistently line up who are compelling and know their subject and, and have something to say? I thought like, we'll burn through this talent pool in maybe a year or so. But you, you've had no trouble not only reaching out to people and getting them on the show, but you've since been approached by a lot of people who we've also ended up speaking with. So no shortage of, certainly no shortage of subject matter to talk about and no shortage of, you know, interesting people to talk about it with. So, so in that time, 117 episodes all of those news bonuses, other features, we kind of modified the, the approach that we've taken in order to to be a little more mm-hmm. responsive to current events and that That's kind of right. thing. In that time, what has stood out to you as the most uh, salient topics or themes that have run across this show um, that we keep coming back to? What are the ones that kind of define it for you? Well, we started with and continue to return to uh, issues of policing, police behavior, police shootings, ways of changing or reforming police. I suppose if you had to grab one strand out of the whole thing, it would be criminal justice reform, 
which has turned out to be a huge, huge issue, not just for the podcast, but politically and socially. Uh, you know, it's debated uh, in the presidential debates all during the fall of 2019 and into 2020. Um, every candidate, we did a special series for our listener members about the platforms on criminal justice issues for each presidential candidate on the Democratic side. And we never ran out of things to talk about when yeah. we were doing that. I mean, that really shows you how far those sorts of issues have, have gone. But it's not just been about police. We have talked about uh, first the beginnings and then the actuality of the reform of the cash bail system, something that would have been discussed among some people, uh, academics and some, even a few folks like our guest, uh, Judge Truman Morrison of D.C. Superior Court in episode 20, the reform of cash bail. But it really seemed almost quixotic in former years. Mm -hmm. Now there are whole states that have done this. Uh, we have talked about mass incarceration in any number of ways. Uh, the number of people inside, what they're there for, of course, racial disproportion, of course, but even something like, okay, what do we do now? Uh, there's been this huge shift towards electronic uh, monitoring. And we had a great right. guest, uh, my colleague uh, Chaz Arnett, talking about what he calls e-carceration, uh, the use of these electronic devices uh, to incarcerate people, keep them tethered to the system, and all of the issues that that raises. So it's really been incredibly broad and deep within this whole sphere. Uh, I know that you've probably had the uh, issues that have come up for you uh, in our interviews and news bonuses that have, you know, uh, stopped you, too, and made you really oh, listen. Yeah. I mean, and so much the more so from my standpoint as somebody who, you know, is, is not expert in these matters, I'm, I'm viewing it from some distance. It's been fascinating to watch you work, but it's also been really remarkable to see how much of you know, what you were talking about really early on has become more relevant, more prominent. And you were talking about the cash bail thing. That was, it's hard to imagine now, but that that did seem kind of out there in yeah. 2016 or whenever you first broached it. And now it's, it's the sweeping the nation. The other thing I recall coming up early on was, can we reform prosecution at the ballot box? Like, yeah. can we elect prosecutors who will approach this differently? And that also seemed, you know, maybe a little far-fetched at the time. Not so much now. Oh, that is so true. You know, forever, prosecution offices. You know, we elect prosecutors in this country, and it's actually quite uncommon if you look across the world. In any other developed country, this is not done, and yet it's always been done here. These offices are also quite local. It's usually county by county, or in some states, they group counties into districts, like in Florida. And forever, these things had been low-visibility offices, but highly, highly powerful in terms of who goes to jail and how many go to jail and for what. Um, uh, and uh, it, it has not gone unnoticed uh, in the wake of these issues, uh, the, sh the police shootings and other things that have brought criminal justice issues into a national focus. All of a sudden, you've got people thinking, hey, wait, if we want real change in criminal justice, we need to capture prosecutors 
offices. And this has begun to happen. Again, it, this is not something that had showed up before we started, but it sure is now. We featured uh, Whitney Timus uh, back, uh, I want to say in the 70s. I don't mean the 1970s. I mean episodes <laughs> somewhere between 70 and 79. I'm sorry, I don't know the number off the top. Uh, and she works for one of the funders of these uh, campaigns. Uh, to get um, uh, uh, prosecutors who I guess we could characterize as more progressive into office. And we are now seeing full terms for the first crop of those elected, people like Kim Fox in Chicago, who, as we are recording this, has just faced and won uh, the primary uh, for her first bid for re-election. And there have been others, too. Uh, Larry Krasner, very prominently in Philadelphia, a guy elected who had not only never been a prosecutor, but had been a defense attorney and a civil rights attorney who'd sued the police department over and over. Mm-hmm. And they these people, Rachel Rollins in Boston, Amaris Ayala, I hope I'm saying that right, down in Florida, so many others, Uh, elected on criminal justice reform platforms uh, of a very local and impactful nature. Fox, at this point, uh, we've just done a bonus on her, which has either posted or will post soon. Uh, uh, Kim Fox, uh, one of her re-election primary campaign claims has been about how she uh, has brought down the incarcerated population at the county jail through her actions by almost 20%. And this is what people elected these folks for. So it's been a real sea change. And of course, now, several years in, we're seeing a huge backlash to this by more traditional folks on the criminal justice side. And we've done any number of bonuses already. I was looking back at this about the backlash that has been building and building all the way up to the U.S. Attorney General uh, with Bill Barr, uh, United States Attorney General, giving all kinds of public statements, pushing back on these challenges and these reform efforts. So this is not something that's going to go away. And I plan uh, for us to stay on this and keep watch. I, I, I think we're going to see more of it, more of these people mm. elected. And the pushback has only just begun. You know, the other broad category that comes to mind when I think about how much has changed since we started down this road. Uh, Obviously, technology is always changing. Uh, Some of the advances that have occurred, I guess you want to characterize it that way, uh, have really changed the criminal justice space as well. I mean, you mentioned electronic monitoring a little earlier, but, you know, we've we've seen facial recognition grow in leaps and bounds. Drones now are ubiquitous and used by law enforcement and others. License plate readers, all kinds of things, uh, to say nothing of DNA evidence, et cetera, yes. et cetera. I know, like, you have written about all of this stuff before, the way that we understand what technology is, how it works, and how, how it's applied to law enforcement. How has that changed for you since uh, since we started this? Well, the, the deeper dives on all of these things have really impressed me uh, with the sense of how much law enforcement has uh, uh, taken up uh, these new tools and the ways that they have the potential to or are already changing the law enforcement landscape. I mean, you take something like drones and then you magnify that to think about the project that was uh, tried and ultimately stopped in Dayton, but tried and ultimately continued in Baltimore to launch these uh, drones that stay up for long periods just like in Iraq, 
uh, or other battle spaces and monitor what is going on in a city through, uh, you know, highly, highly uh, sophisticated camera systems. And you really have a sense of how different law enforcement is going to be in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Facial recognition also, lots of discussion about that. Uh, We've uh, brought to the fore uh, lots of news and even a guest, uh, the fellow from the Georgetown Center, and um, again, I apologize for not remembering his name right here and now, uh, talking to us about how these systems were not really ready for prime time. They're going to get better, but at least as things stand now, they disadvantage uh, people with darker skin uh, and women who wear makeup. Uh, And all of these are deep concerns as we forge into this new world. And uh, we have to think in terms of how these are going to change things. And we should be having conversations in the public about these technologies before they're launched and to discuss how we want law enforcement to use them before they're launched. And instead, uh, it's getting out way ahead of us. I can say as a listener, what I really appreciate about the way you do your interviews is like you not only you bring a depth of knowledge on the subject, obviously, but there's also a collegiality and there's a genuine I think curiosity uh, that makes the conversation natural and always really rewarding. Well, thank Um, you. On your side of the mic, though, like what do you get out of these conversations? What are you going for and what do you like about the interview episodes we do? Well, I really enjoy them because I learn a lot. And, you know, uh, that's just who I am. I like to learn new things. And I always approach these interviews not as a law professor or even a lawyer necessarily. I try to approach them as I would if I was learning something brand new uh, and I am in the shoes and try to be in the ears and the heads of my listeners. Uh, And I find that that's the best way to learn things, to simply be open and to let people tell you about what they do. Now, sometimes, you know, some guests like to talk more than others, and that's cool, too. You know, uh, one of the great things about the podcasting format is that there are re- no real time limits except the limits of people's attention. And I really enjoy that because it allows us to stretch out and learn unexpected things. You know, the, the thing that a person says at the end of a long sentence. Uh, I like the chance to connect with some of these really extraordinary people. I mean, some of them uh, are people maybe we've never heard of and who never will have a regular spot on the Today Show or is a CNN talking head, but they are people who you know, are really doing such interesting and impactful things. Um, I like bringing listeners things that they would maybe not ordinarily know. I mean, the news space overall, uh, maybe it's expanded with the uh, with the Internet. Uh, there's certainly more thrown at us. My sense is that while there's more news and information coming at us all the time than ever before through the good graces of the interwebs, um, it is it is not nearly at the depth that will give us the understanding we need to really uh, to really get at what is at stake in a lot of these issues, and we have the chance to do that. And then I guess I really like the chance to track developments in this very important sphere of our civic life over time. I mean, and, and returning to that idea of the more progressive prosecutors being elected, we've seen them elected, we've seen their first stabs at new policies and 
and now we're seeing the backlash. And we've been right. able to sort of take the, the view of all of that and keep track of it as it's happened. As you look forward, you know, talking about the backlash to the reforms in prosecutors' offices, um, clearly, like, this chapter is just getting started. What else are you looking at down the road? What what issues do you see becoming the most important ones in the next, say, the next four years of criminal justice? Well, um, it will be uh, a whole smorgasbord of changes in some of the same issues. We're going to, for instance, have the first big chunks of data on cash bail reform. So we have one system in uh, that's new in California, a different one in New Jersey, um, and we'll see what the actual data show. Uh, and that will hopefully, that's what I would want, I would want that to guide things going forward. And we'll bring people here who will talk to us about what the data actually show from an unbiased point of view, not from the point of view of here's from the bail industry, well, here's the other side of it from the uh, activists. I mean, we may have people like that, but I'm looking and I think our listeners want uh, that uh, that unvarnished data-based view. I think we may also see, for the first time in a while, some changes in uh, the way governments react to problems ahead of time. I think that may be one of the lessons, I hope anyway, that we learned from this coronavirus thing, um, that uh, we can't sleep on problems when we see them approaching. And we've had this, the benefit here uh, in this country of knowing that this wave is probably coming at us for almost three months. And in certain ways, we have done so little to prepare. And I think the costs of that are going to be enormous, not just mm-hmm. across criminal justice, but in many spheres, particularly for medical providers. I, I just, you know, it's almost too much uh, to imagine. And we're still a few weeks out as we record this from what they're talking about is the peak of this in some of the states. So I'm hoping that that will inspire people to to, to sort of take a look at problems ahead of time. And I'm going to ask what we can do in the criminal justice sphere to actually get at that. A third thing that I see ahead is foreshadowed by a couple of really excellent episodes uh, that we've done over the last uh, uh, year or so. Uh, and that is uh, more conversation with people who either are or have been inside prisons and ways to open that up. I mean, there are some very good podcasts out there that are doing that. Uh, I know some of our listeners uh, are are interested in those and listen to them. Uh, We've had two really excellent episodes that have maybe more than two. I mean, we had the Inside Out program. Uh, that we featured here, we've had. That's the one where uh, the college students and incarcerated people learn together inside a prison. We've had uh, a great episode on the College Behind Bars a television series on PBS, uh, which I just thought was extraordinary. And then, uh, actually, just a couple of episodes ago. Uh, we have had we had a conversation with Rod, Robert Weidman, uh, uh, known before right. this as the brother of the famous novelist John Edgar Weidman, 
But uh, what uh, what a conversation that was. I am still thinking about it almost every day, uh, listening to him talk about what prison was like and how he eventually changed himself within and then was lucky enough to have his life without parole sentence uh, commuted. Uh, and now he's out. So I look for more opportunities to talk about people who are in and what happens when they come out, whether that is reentry, whether that is personal experience or something else. I'm glad you mentioned the Robert Weidman piece because I, I really feel like one of the things that works about this approach that we've developed is the breadth of perspectives and experience that that you bring to the interviews with people who have personally been affected by, have maybe even been inside the criminal justice system, and then people who study it uh, from the outside, either from an academic post or as you know as a journalist or just a, a writer with an interest in the subject. We get a lot of points of view on all of these issues. But I'm just wondering, do you have a particular type of guest that's your favorite kind? Uh, what are the most interesting vantage points? Well, you know, in the last uh, year and a half or so, as you mentioned before, we've increasingly had people seek us out uh, and say, hey, this we think this new thing or this person would be a good match for your podcast. And uh, one of the, the nice consequences of that is that people are always looking for ways to talk about new books. And uh, the journalists that we've had a chance to talk to um, have have been among my very favorite guests. And that's, you know, for a lot of good reasons. Uh, they really know their stuff when they've written a book. Having written a few myself, I can tell you, you never learn anything at the depth that you do when, <laughs> yeah. as when you write a book. Um, but uh, they're also natural storytellers and really good at that. And so uh, the shows we've had with, with Jesse Isinger, who wrote The Chicken Shit Club, with Emily Baz- Bazelon, uh, who uh, wrote her book, Charge, that was released in 2019. Great book. Um, uh, so many others. Uh, that has just been a delight for me because uh, you really can see them uh, on how they work. Uh, one of our very early episodes uh, was with uh, the uh, uh, newspaper writer and Pulitzer winner. Uh, pardon me, did I say that right or wrong? Pulitzer or Pulitzer? I think Pulitzer. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, with the Pulitzer winner, Maurice Posley, uh, he's about to come out with a brand new book. I am salivating at the prospect of talking to him, uh, getting him on again uh, once we can resume interviews uh, after some of our uh, technical issues with doing interviews mm-hmm. in other ways are addressed because I can't get to a studio now. Um, but those, I think, have been really, really fun and interesting for me. Beyond that, uh, I'm, I really enjoy some of the, the interviews we've done with public servants. Um, not all of them, frankly, because some of them, you know, when you talk to people in the public sphere, sometimes they're just all about their talking points. Right. But uh, others have just been incredibly interesting. And you see people doing public service in a way that, you know, as a citizen, just really warms your heart and makes you feel good and makes you feel like good people are in charge. I think about uh, Sheriff Tom Dart in Cook County, 
who uh, has uh, changed mental health treatment from within Cook County Jail. Uh, I think about uh, Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel of Pennsylvania, who we talked about. I mean, here's a guy who runs one of the largest prison systems in the United States, and he's talking about giving an inmate a copy of Viktor Frankl's book. Uh, I mean, you know, I just thought that was an incredible conversation. And there have been others, too. George Gascon, who was then the DA in San Francisco, about some of his initiatives and policies. And now he's running for DA in Los Angeles. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a weird twist. But you have to know that George started his career as a police officer in Los Angeles, got a law degree later in life, became first a police chief in San Francisco, then a DA in San Francisco. And now he's running for DA in Los Angeles. So some of those people, I mean, just... Just talking with such extraordinary people, some incredible researchers, uh, those have been my favorites. Did I read correctly that George Gascon, his race is the same one as the episode we did a, a couple weeks back, maybe, where a, a prosecutor's spouse had pulled a gun on some protesters? <laughs> Was That is the same election, right? Did, yes, did it is. Right? You got that right. Uh, the incumbent there is a, a, a DA named Jackie Lacey. Uh, she's an old school, tough on crime prosecutor, sort of the opposite of this uh, uh, progressive wave. George is very much one of those progressive DAs, but he was he was a little in front of the wave, but able to operate that way because he'd been in San Francisco. And uh, uh, he is uh, probably her main opponent right now. Uh, I need to get caught up on that. Uh, California's elections work a little bit different. They do runoffs in certain situations. And when we recorded that episode, uh, uh, incumbent Lacey, uh, whose uh, husband, yes, uh, had been uh, uh, on film pulling a gun on people in front of his house. Uh, she'd gotten about 48% of the vote. Gascon in the 20s, but the leading challenger. And I think if I understand the system correctly, uh, he's going to be in a runoff against her. We'll check that out and make sure and do another news bonus. So uh, George Gascon, man, that guy's got legs from the LAPD. <laughs> then he was chief in Mesa, Arizona, then chief in San Francisco, DA in San Francisco, and now back home to L.A. perhaps. And it's fascinating to see kind of the same cast of characters pop up. Uh, you know, the more people you have on, the more names become familiar <laughs> to me, the more I feel like I see them in, in national news. Yes, it happens. It really does. What about you? Have you have you had some favorite uh, episodes or guests? Oh wow! What I would say is that the episodes I've responded to the most were ones where something is revealed about how the system works that you wouldn't have thought of, or at least I wouldn't have thought of. You know, like we we know there is racial disparity in conviction and sentencing. But uh, at least for me, I hadn't made fully the connection to the issue of jury selection, which you've treated in a couple of episodes. That's right. Uh, talking about the racial politics of jury selection and the way that system works at a technical level that I think most people know very little about, much less the sort of nuances of implicit bias and all the psychological dynamics that play into that. You don't hear as much about that. So to spend 30, 40 minutes just focusing on something like that, you begin to see the whole issue in another way. I mean, I think about what we've learned about the internal politics of law enforcement agencies and prosecutors' offices, largely by talking to people like George Gascon and others who have you know, worked within these systems. 
you know, there's there's more going on internally sometimes than meets the eye. Uh, at, at the same time as we have these, you know, often draconian crackdowns on certain types of crimes applied to certain populations. At the same time, you know, like the the Chicken Shit Club that you mentioned, the Justin Isinger book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another name, incidentally, that that I've seen a lot more places now that after he's been on our show. So I guess it's the, the the criminal injustice bump, but uh-huh. equally important to the question of why are we prosecuting certain crimes and why are we policing certain populations disproportionately to others is why aren't we going after, you know, corruption and white collar crime with the same intensity and ferocity? So like those are I think those are the episodes that stick with me and that have sort of changed my thinking over time. That's so interesting. And I hope the same is happening for lots of our listeners. I mean, if if all you would be doing for listeners would be, uh, here's the latest criminal justice news, that would certainly be interesting. But let's, let's be just honest. There are other sources for some of that, uh, and many of them very good now. Um, but I'm glad we're able to do that, not just for you, but uh, for other people, too. At the beginning, we were talking about this new setup, the way we're doing things now. Everybody is adjusting to a, a new way of working, those of us who are fortunate enough to, to be able to continue working during this time. What else do we want to let people know about housekeeping-wise in terms of the way the show is set up and is going to continue uh, going forward? Any other information we should share? Yeah, I, I say in the short term, we're going to be uh, posting Uh, Lots of news and lots of other kinds of features uh, and fewer interviews. And that's just because without access to a studio, uh, I'm still learning the the tech world. I've had to do it uh, for my day job, too. Um, And so uh, my learning curve has been rather steep. Um, But until I can really master some new things to do from home... Uh, it's hard to do a two-person interview. We're doing one, obviously, right now, but we have uh, we have some access to doing this in a in a way that a lot of guests would not. So uh, once we get that capability built up, we'll start doing interviews again. But for the short term, at least. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of news. And some of that will be how does COVID-19 affect the criminal justice uh, uh, sphere, its institutions, particularly jails and prisons. And I've already done a couple on that, but other things too. But that's not all it'll be. We're going to keep our eye on many things that are still going on out there uh, for our listeners, as they would expect. Another thing I want to mention, uh, shortly before all of this happened, and things change for everyone. We went to a membership appeal system using Patreon. I'm hopeful that we'll get some other folks to support us too. We thank those of you who have joined. It is really, really appreciated. Uh, Thank you for doing that. Uh, And if you will consider doing that, we will be so, so grateful. Um, uh, And uh, uh, we want to uh, also uh, have more contact with our listeners. Um, We have done this in the past. We ran a feature for uh, quite a while called Ask Dave, but I hope people will continue to contact us through the website, which is very much alive. Go to criminalinjusticepodcast.com, all one word, criminalinjusticepodcast. Look for the tab that I think says Ask Dave, and just tell me what's going on in your community. Tell me about a lawyer behaving badly or a judge behaving badly. Tell me what your concerns are, because uh, we We've really generated some episodes out of some of those, and I'm very glad to get them. And we want to know what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear about. So 
I'm hoping for greater engagement all the time. And then, I've said this already, but we're going to be following this whole progressive prosecutor and backlash thing. That's just, I think, a key issue for everybody going forward. So much more to talk about looking forward, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you come up with wherever this show goes next. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, I guess just two things. Uh, Number one, Josh, I want to thank you for everything you do to make the show sound great, to make sure it gets up and the episodes go up and uh, all the expertise and the the lessons you've taught me. Uh, And then just thanks, listeners. Uh, We really appreciate you. It's the reason that uh, I do this and I really enjoy it. Uh, I hope you'll support the show. Uh, but whether you do with your dollars or just do it by listening and, and sharing it with other people, I really, really appreciate you and thank you. So that's it from me. Uh, thank you for being with me, Josh, for this birthday celebration. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and, and happy birthday. Congrats. Oh, and same to you. That's it, listeners. We'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>